and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Zachary Kramer, Associate Dean of Faculty and Professor of Law at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. We will discuss his new book, Outsiders, Why Difference is the Future of Civil Rights, which is published by Oxford University Press, as well as other aspects of, of his job. So welcome to the podcast, Zach. Brian, thanks for having me here. It's great. I'm really excited. I'm a listener, so uh, it's pretty it's pretty good to hear. Well, that's a great honor to hear it. I'm always so excited to hear that people are listening to and, and, and enjoying the podcast because it's been great for me, and I feel like I learned so much from all my guests, and I'm looking forward to learning from you as well because, I, I mean, I really enjoyed reading your book mm-hmm. and 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 I think that there's just a lot of of powerful ideas and and stories in there. Um, but 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 for listeners who might not be familiar with civil rights law and and how it works, I, I was wondering if you could if you could talk about sort of how how we think about civil rights through the lens of the law today, mm-hmm. right? So like, what's the kind of the lay of the land for sort of how civil rights law works as a way of thinking about some of the ways maybe it's not working as well as we'd like it to? Yeah, sure. So so civil rights can mean a lot of things, obviously. Um, and I will uh, say that when I use the term civil rights, I'm talking very specifically about uh, statutory civil rights. Uh, so my area of expertise um, is employment discrimination, um, and I tend to be talking, for the most part of the book, about employment discrimination um, or housing discrimination, um, possibly discrimination in schools. And so I don't spend a lot of time um, in constitutional law or, you know, people hear civil rights, they may be thinking about um, uh, kind of police and uh, searches and excessive force, stuff like that. Um, and so uh, I'm writing in, primarily in the domain of employment discrimination um, and I'm writing on a landscape where, uh, for as long as I've been a faculty member since uh, 2004-ish, I think is when I started my VAP, uh, at a time where civil rights scholars have been very frustrated with the direction of civil rights law and what it's trying to achieve. Um, and the easiest sense is it's trying to achieve equality. It's trying to um, redress longstanding wrongs. Uh, bringing people uh, who've been shut out of civic, civil society into uh, public domains like employment, fair housing, stuff like that. Um, and so uh, in particular, the area that I have been trying to tackle over the years, and the book is largely a culmination, um, is calibrating this relationship between identity and equality. Civil rights law ultimately is the law of identity, uh, trying to figure out um, who has been wronged historically, who's being wronged and modern times and trying to find ways to right those wrongs. Um, I, for the most part, have been writing about um, sexuality and and gender stuff, uh, which is an interesting place within civil rights because it fits rather awkwardly. Um, Sometimes it's protected, sometimes it's not protected, depending on what kinds of jurisdictions you're dealing with. Uh, But I'm mostly writing about Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, um, which protects um, on the basis of race, color, sex, uh, religion, uh, national origin. Uh, and so um, thinking about uh, what kind of rights you have when you go to work, um, to be free from harassment, um, to be hired and fired on fairgrounds, um, where the book uh, 
kind of ventures um, is into a little bit of religious discrimination um, and thinking through ways of doing civil rights law a little bit differently. And I'm, obviously we'll talk uh, in, in greater detail. Um, but uh, for me, uh, it's really about trying to find ways where uh, we can patrol what identity traits uh, employers are taking into account when they're making employment decisions about who they're going to hire, about who they're going to promote, about who they're going to mentor, who they're going to exclude. Uh, and so which of those identities matter um, and when they matter. Mm-hmm. And and one thing that really struck me as, as kind of central to the book is the, the way that you observe that we kind of for a long time now have thought about these kinds of statutory civil rights, primarily in terms of groups and group characteristics. I mean, for obvious and, and necessary reasons, mm-hmm. really, but ways in which sometimes that conceptualization of civil rights breaks down or doesn't work as well as we might hope that it could. And, and you really illustrate that beautifully with some like anecdotes and stories about people's experiences. I, w- I wonder if you could share a couple of those stories yeah. to kind of illustrate where that kind of framework for thinking of civil rights maybe doesn't capture the best version of it we could have. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, so I'll give you um, the example that is my favorite one from the book, which is a famous case um, uh, about a woman named Darlene Jesperson. I, uh, it was in so much of the book that the editor um, basically confronted me and told me I needed to cut her out. Um, otherwise, it was a book about Darlene Jesperson. Um, she was a, uh, a bartender at a sports bar in uh, Reno, uh, Nevada, and she had worked at this uh, sports bar for a very long time, um, longer than any job I've ever had. And she had uh, an exceptional employment record. She had won awards. There were no complaints Um, and the one thing that was important to her is that she didn't feel comfortable wearing makeup. Uh, the employer for most of her time at the bar, um, had a rule that said we encourage women to wear makeup, but no one was required. Um, and they eventually changed that policy and they adopted, um, this program that was called the personal best program, which is just about the most condescending name, uh, for an employment policy where they brought in a stylist and the stylist made up. Um, the men and the women that work there um, and took a photo of them. And then they had to put that photo in their locker. Uh, and every day they had to uh, look like their photo and all of the women had to wear makeup. That was a requirement. And so it was no longer suggested. It was now, uh, it was now required. And Darlene Jesperson tried, but didn't feel comfortable and she couldn't do it. Uh, and so she went to the, uh, to her boss and said, this isn't working for me. Can I get an exception to this? They said, there'd be no exceptions. Uh, and if it was going to be a problem, she'd have to find a new job. She was unable to find a new job within the company, even though she'd worked there a long time, uh, and she invariably left the employment. And so uh, she brought a sex discrimination claim under Title VII. Uh, and so that's the first point where this gets interesting, because um, it's not easy to understand why that would be sex discrimination. Um, it's about makeup. It's about appearance. It's about the way a woman is supposed to look. And so it sounds a little bit like uh, gender stereotyping. Uh, and that was the meat of her claim. Uh, she invariably lost that in the Ninth Circuit. Uh, the court concluded that the complaints of a single woman um, are not enough to 
give rise to a Title VII claim. And so uh, what the court needed would be, I think for lack of a better way of saying it, would be like a narrative of group subordination. We need some sort of rule or policy that is bad for women, that keeps women out of the workplace or keeps them from advancing in the workplace. Uh, And so part of what interested me about a case like that is one, I've always been very uh, kind of focused, hyper-focused, I think, in my scholarship about messy identities and this idea of of who gets to decide what your identity is. Um, And so uh, this is an interesting moment because the employer is saying this is what women need to look like. Uh, And conversely, this is what men need to look like, although the men were um, forbidden from wearing makeup. Uh, And so that's interesting uh, in one sense. Uh, And then also, uh, you add to it this idea that there's no kind of role for individuality, that we're talking about women. Now, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act is um, the kind of gold standard of these civil rights statutes. It doesn't talk about groups. um, It talks about individuals. Uh, And so somewhere along the way, the court started talking about discrimination in terms of groups, in terms of protected classes or protected groups. Those are judicial terms. They're not actually in the statute. Uh, And so Darlene brings this claim um, and she loses. Uh, The second thing that really registered with me uh, is that the court talks about this as if it is a disparate treatment uh, claim. Disparate treatment is intentional discrimination where you're treating one person differently because of who they are. Um, And I've always read this case and thought to myself that that actually sounds like a failed reasonable accommodation claim. Um, reasonable accommodation being a vehicle that's available to folks um, primarily under the ADA, where um, an employer is actually affirmatively required to take steps to accommodate uh, the, uh, the, the employee, and the failure to do so would be a form of discrimination. Uh, and so it seems to me that what happened in that case is Darlene said, I got this problem. Is there anything we can do? And the employer said, no. Right. And so the discrimination mm-hmm. um, flowed out of that. And then the third thing that was just really remarkable to me is if you actually look at the deposition where Darlene Jesperson described the injury, she doesn't talk about women. She doesn't talk about why makeup is bad for women. She doesn't talk about how it hurts uh, an ability of a woman like her to uh, rise in the ranks at her workplace. She talked about herself. She said um, that I lose my dignity. I don't feel like me um, anymore. Uh, and so I see this case and I think the court is talking about women and the court is talking about sex discrimination as caring about women as a group. Um, and I realize why it should, um, but I see this as a case of Darlene Jesperson discrimination. It's about this mm. particular person who has a very strong um, sense of who she is and who she is is someone who just doesn't wear makeup. Um, and I am very interested in these aspects of our identities that are unique to us, but that define us. And so the, the book um, is an attempt to collect stories where people stick out in some way. Um, and even if they have an identity trait that is shared with lots of people, it may manifest in a way that's unique to them or they care about it for reasons um, that are unique to them. And so uh, my other favorite example from the book is the uh, the hairstylist, um, the female hairstylist who shaved her head and then got fired for it because um, that is a bald guy. I just think that's uh, <laughs> remarkable. Uh, the bald is beautiful. And so, uh, again, I mean, in that situation, she she shaved her head because her sister had cancer and she was, you know, shaving it out of solidarity. And to me, that's exactly what civil rights is about. Right. It's standing up for each other and trying to make um, you know, our society better for everyone. Um, and so it's again, it's a situation where 
It doesn't fit cleanly in the way we've always understood civil rights. And it's not really about bald women as a group. It's about this one particular bald woman um, and how she is facing an injury. And so what I'm trying to do is imagine if we could reinvent the way we think about civil rights cases, not about groups, not about all women, um, uh, whether they wear makeup or whether they have hair, uh, but really about individuals who have some identity trait that is essential to their being and finding a way to protect uh, that essential uh, identity-ness or authenticity, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I, and it's interesting because the Darlene Jesperson case kind of resonated with the Roy Lester claim yeah, for the, me the as well. Right? It, it really, I mean, he almost seemed like, it almost seemed like a male version of a similar yeah. kind of concern yeah. where it was like there was a rule that, affected him mm -hmm. because he was a man in the same way that the rule affected Darlene Jesperson because she was a woman. But the reason it was a problem was not because of their sex or gender, yeah. but because of their own personal sense of right. self-preservation. Yeah. So let me just say, so Roy Lester, um, thanks for bringing it up. That's a good one. Roy Lester is uh, a lifeguard. He's a lawyer um, by day and a lifeguard by weekend. <laughs> um, and he'd been a lifeguard at Jones Beach um, for uh, for the longest time. And I had no idea that there was this kind of lifeguard culture um, built up around Jones Beach. But there was this this American Life episode where I stole it from, um, properly cited, I hope, uh, where they, although maybe we should talk about that, maybe about the plagiarism side. But anyway, <laughs> um, just to, to get to your interest. Uh, but Roy Lester is um, a man who's been a lifeguard for mo most of his life. Um, and as he was getting older, even though he is in incredible physical shape, he became um, uh, a little uncomfortable wearing a Speedo and wanted to find a way to uh, do his yearly training and licensing um, without wearing the Speedo. And gradually, the folks that ran Jones Beach, which I think is the Park District of New York, um, adopted a rule that you, you have to wear official sanctioned um, swim gear when you're taking the uh, when you're taking the test. And he didn't want to do that because he felt uncomfortable. Uh, and so again, it's it's not simply about age and it's not simply about man uh, being a man. It's about this particular man uh, brushing up against a rule and uh, not feeling like he can be true to himself. Uh, and again, he you know brought a civil rights claim. Um, and it's not clear to me, you know, that case has been in litigation a long time. It's not clear it's not easy. It's a hard case because it blurs lines of what's protected. Is it age? Is it sex? Is it this kind of you know interconnection of the two, or is it in the negative spaces um, in between those identities? Um, and for the most part, uh, civil rights law is not good at those ambiguous cases. Um, and I will say, I've spent the bulk of my career trying to kind of disentangle them, um, trying to come up with a way for courts or juries to identify when a form of discrimination is one form and not another. Um, but where I landed and what the book is about is actually trying to take that question away from, uh, away from the courts uh, and trying to allow people to identify themselves for um, you know, how they see themselves or how they enter the world and making that an object of civil rights law. Um, there is some question about whether it can still be civil rights law and maybe it's equality law or identity law. I'm not sure what the term would be. Um, but I think you're exactly right that the Jespersons and the Roy Lesters 
uh, and then the kind of the, the bald woman. I mean, all of these stories um, where uh, there are these rules that maybe on their face are not a problem, but individual people are bumping into them uh, and it causes them great distress to try to change themselves. Uh, and mm. my question is maybe they shouldn't have to change themselves. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, reading your book, it really struck me that in some ways that a lot of the stories you told seem to break down into two categories. Like in one set of cases, there was like a, a kind of like a rule that got adopted and by the employer and one of the employees just couldn't because of who they were right. abide by the rule and yeah. the employer just was unwilling to be flexible mm -hmm. about the application of the rule. And then in another set of cases, it was almost like the employer saw characteristic of the employee and said, we don't like that characteristic yeah. because it doesn't fit with what we want to do. And they couldn't, you know, the employee couldn't not do what they were doing. Yeah. In a way, what struck me about the book is like, you sort of get it how at the end of the day, it seems like it comes down to like this failure to communicate. Mm -hmm. Like, like there's, there is and should be plenty of room for compromise on these things. But for some reason, like some kind of social transactions costs prevent people from getting there. Yeah. Is that, is that right? I think that's completely right. I mean, I, I'll, I'll credit a colleague of mine, uh, my colleague, Rhett Larson, um, who is an unbelievable reader uh, and has this enormous mind and he brings lots of, um, I don't read, and I'm not into like comic books, right? But um, he can explain ways in which, um, you know, these you know, big ideas are all solved in comic books. It's amazing. Um, he, you know, early on when I started working on it, um, he said that really this is a book about information uh, and it's a book about uh, how people share parts of themselves and how employers uh, either solicit information or shut off information. Um, and so I'm of the, I'm an associate dean. So, right, like I'm in the information business. Um, and I will say that for me to do my administrative job well, I need to know as much about my colleagues um, and the institution as possible. Uh, I need as much information about, you know, what they need, what's working, what's not working in order to, uh, make the institution or help the institution run smoothly. Um, and I think that's true of civil rights law. I mean, it's really about the ability for employers to communicate to employees what's needed and employees to uh, communicate to employers what they need to thrive in the workplace, which is, of course, in the best interest uh, of the employer. Uh, but the problem with the way we tend to do civil rights law, or at least employment discrimination law, um, is we treat it as zero sum, and it's about winners and losers, and it actually discourages people from talking to each other. Um, and so there's no mechanism in the existing law for someone like Darlene Jesperson to say, the makeup is really a problem for me, and I'm an unbelievable employee. Can we find a way through this? The law basically says either there is an, you know, an adverse action, um, an adverse employment action, or there isn't. Uh, and so what I am trying to do is trying to incorporate into this body of law, this requirement that the employers and the employees have to talk to each other, right? They have mm. to communicate about expectations about what's needed. Um, it is an employer's best interest to know things about their employees to try to find the ideal working environment. Because again, when you create a good working environment for your employees, your employees do their jobs better. They like their jobs better. Um, they're happier. They want to stay in them a longer time. 
Uh, and so to me, um, you can think about all of these cases as about a failure to communicate, right? It's very timely in the sense that, you know, all of these conversations that we have um, in kind of public discourse right now are um, a lot of the way, I mean, they're, they are infused with this inability for people to communicate and to um, communicate in a positive way. Um, and I think you see that in civil rights law. And I'm trying to come up with ways to encourage people uh, to articulate uh, their identities in such a way that employers will want to help create space for difference. Does that answer your mm. question? I hope it did. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and, and what was really interesting to me was the way you kind of analogize to the concept of accommodation yeah. in a disability mm -hmm. context, where I think you know, in a disability law context, I, I really get the impression like there's a background assumption that at the end of the day, ultimately, everyone wants to reach a mutually mm -hmm. agreeable um, sort of resolution. Yeah. And the question is, how do we help employers better understand what people with disabilities need in order to be the best possible employee they can be? Yeah, I think that's definitely right. And, and what is helpful about understanding disability law and what disability law is capable of doing as compared to the rest of um, employment discrimination law um, is disability law imposes on employees and employers to communicate about what's needed, right? And so there's no, there's no rule that says employers must always accommodate uh, employees with, dis with a disability. Um, they must make reasonable accommodations. And that means something specific in this context. Uh, but again, it's, um, it's required that we say to the employee, um, you know, tell us, you know, who you are and what you need. And there is this kind of foundational assumption that no two disabilities are the same, right? And so you can have two people with similar impairments, but require different kinds of accommodations. And then it's on the employer to try to make that work. Uh, and that's a really valuable way of thinking about the relationship between employers and employees. Um, the only other area of, of discrimination law or employment discrimination law that works like that is religion. Um, and religion is really my area of, of interest in the book um, because uh, it operates in a similar way to disability, but mm. tends to be very different um, because many disabilities um, are um, impairments that people are, are born with um, and they change over time in certain situations. Um, but religion is much more movable. Um, and, you know, people convert, people, um, their faith changes over time, you know, they pick and choose, you know, what level they practice. My father is, identifies as a Jew, but resents the idea that he ever has to go to synagogue, right? That's the kind of Jew he is. Um, and, uh, you know, I have been told in my lifetime that I'm not Jewish enough. Um, and I have seen, for instance, a rabbi say that my wife, who is a convert, um, is not technically a Jew. And so, um, what interests me about religion is there's, there's, you know, the, the range of possibilities are limitless. Um, and there is this idea that we get space to kind of carve out what our religion is going to be. Um, and like disability, there is this obligation that employers have to accommodate um, religion. And so one of the moves that I'm making in the book is saying that what would happen, and maybe we should think seriously about um, treating identities not in the kind of there are these groups 
um, and they exist in their discrete way. We have always talked about civil rights um, uh, groups and, and identity traits, but rather as identities that we adopt for ourselves and are actually free to define on our own terms. Mm. Um, and, you know, part of what led me to that way of thinking was actually the transgender discrimination cases, um, uh, in large part because the transgender discrimination cases uh, have never really had a clear anchor in the law. And we've always been trying to find a way to say, you know, is this sex, um, is it gender stereotyping, for example? Um, but to me, it's uh, primarily about self-definition. Uh, and that's what the religion cases are about. Uh, and there's a long-standing tradition in American civil rights law to say, you get to decide your faith, whether it's uh, a status or a practice. Uh, and it seems to me that that is, in fact, what uh, transgender litigants are asking of the courts. Um, mm. And so I am proposing, um, although, you know, you've read the book, so you can see toward the end, it's not clear how much I actually am proposing, because uh, <laughs> uh, I'm a big fan of the cop-out. But uh a scholarly cop-out, I should write a paper. Um, but, you know, ultimately, using those cases, the transgender cases and the religion cases, um, to say that, you know, people want a stake in figuring out who they are, um, and the law should honor that in some way. And the law should encourage employers uh, to allow people to engage in that process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one thing I really liked about the the sort of narrative arc of the book is it seemed to me built to encourage a kind of optimism about the potential for mutually acceptable resolution that feels sometimes like it is not baked in to the current way we think about the structure of civil rights law. I mean, it, it, it seems to me like sort of your, your book assumes the best, like that the problem is a communication yeah. breakdown. And rather than assuming that the problem is animosity toward people because of some immutable right. characteristic – and and sort of encourages resolution mm-hmm. instead of sort of as you say winners winners and losers. Yeah. But 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 it, but it does seem to me like sometimes animosity still is the problem. Yeah, it, I, you're you're totally right. A friend of mine is a litigator for the EEOC, um, and I've talked to him quite a lot about this. Um, and he has that attitude that my book is very quaint and adorable. Um, uh, but every time I talk to him, he likes to remind me of how many active cases there are in the country about nooses, right? race discrimination involving noose. Um, and so um, I think that a fair criticism is that I am too fast to abandon um, uh, the reality that people's working experiences remain fraught at best. Um, and that Hate exists. It's real. It's a part of our life. Um, and I fear that it is more of a part of our life today than it was when I started writing the book. Um, mm. My answer to that, I think, um, although my, my litigator friend did not <laughs> find it very convincing, um, my answer to that is that I believe in, in contact. Um, and I believe that um, uh, as much as microaggressions are real and problematic, microprogressions are valuable um, and uh, contain the potential to change the world. 
Uh, and so I am a believer that the best thing that can happen to people is that they are forced to interact with each other. Um, uh, Cindy Esland is a, a law professor, a leading thinker in employment law. Um, she has a book called Working Together, um, which grew out of a, a series of articles. Um, and I'm just a believer in her idea um, that the workplace is special um, in the sense that uh, most of us have to work, right? We can't afford not to. Um, and few of us have the ability to choose um, our colleagues and our workplaces. Uh, law professors and academics probably don't have as good a sense of that, but most people who go to work um, have very little say in who they work with and what they do from day to day. Uh, and so mm. the value of throwing people together, people that possibly would otherwise never interact with each other, has the ability to change the way you see people. It has the ability to uh, break down stereotypes. It has the ability to make bonds that otherwise wouldn't exist. Um, and I'm a firm believer um, that there is alchemy in a workplace. Uh, and that alchemy uh, has the ability to teach us how to be better to each other. Because for the most part, I do believe people want to go to work and they want to do well and they want to be decent, even if they suffer from stereotypes, even if they suffer from kind of baked in um, biases. Uh, and so, yes, uh, we can't certainly get rid of all of them, but I think I think people want to do better. I think the real gift of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is not just that it stamped out a lot of the discrimination that was common at the time, uh, but that it brought to many people a non-discrimination norm. And civil rights laws only work when we want to stop discrimination, like when we really believe in equality and we want to make that a reality for people's lives um, in an everyday sense. And so I do believe that most people want to do that. Um, and I think the way to do that is to force people to actually do the hard work of interacting with each other and listening to each other. I'm a firm believer in reasons, right? Like giving mm. reasons, hearing reasons. Um, people who interact with me on a daily basis will say that I do not practice what I preach, um, but I still believe in it, right? I still believe that, mm. that, that people, when they hear why an employer can't actually make the change they need, um, they will... Uh, They'll listen to it and they will adjust, right? They may not be happy with it, um, but the problem, or at least one of the problems with the way employment discrimination law and a lot of civil rights law works now is there's no space for reasons, right? Mm. There's nothing that requires employers and employees to try to figure these sorts of things out. And I believe that if we forced people to do it and kind of facilitated those interactions, people would hear each other a little bit better. Um, and if people hear each other a little bit better, they may be more willing uh, to give each other the benefit of the doubt. They may be able to find our common humanity. Um, and there are just mm. bad people, right? And there are people who are always going to do um, even the worst, and I don't know how to fix that. Um, but I choose to believe that people want to better each other's lives. Mm. Mm. And, 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 and one thing I thought was really interesting, especially in relation to this dichotomy, is like you sort of recognize like your... EEOC friend says that like, you know, there's a reason why we have these categories and why we pursue these categories because this is where big problems are. And there's sort of the implication that maybe some of these more individuated um, concerns don't seem in some ways like as important or kind of as socially significant as the sort of social category based mm -hmm. concerns. But you make this analogy to 
like how we think about those accommodations in the context of religion mm -hmm. to like look look for sincerity yeah. in people's beliefs and like as as a marker for when it really means something. Right. Um, and that struck me as like a really interesting way of thinking about sort of like when and why we should value certain kinds of individuated, like self-realization related yeah. issues as worthy of being considered in this kind of context. Yeah. Thanks. So, so, discrimination, it occurs on, on a micro and a macro level. So if an employer says, I will not hire a woman for this job, that, that on the micro level, that woman suffers an injury. Um, and then on the macro level, that is bad for women um, if employers have that, because if these exist in the aggregate, um, that means that the entire group suffers. And so civil rights law has primarily tried to accomplish both, and both surely matter. Um, what's happening in my in my universe in this book is to elevate the micro, the individual one, and say that we can care about these even if there's not an aggregate, right? Because we're not really worried about the bald women, and we're not really worried as a, kind of a, a social concern women who refuse to wear makeup. You can make an argument about why it is in fact bad for women, uh, but that argument is has not always taken hold in the law itself. Um, and so to me, my argument is that if we take the individual seriously in cases where it matters to the individual who they are, right? It's these moments of your, these kind of aspects of your identity that are crucial to your life, even if they are not traditionally found within civil rights. If we take, uh, if we allow people to say, I want to protect this part of myself, um, it will create, it will foster more acceptance of all different kinds of difference and effectively trickle down um, or trickle up, depending on how you want to think about it, to the historical um, injuries of civil rights that we care about. But religion's really interesting in this way. So the religious discrimination um, section of Title VII, uh, it protects you in your status um, as a person who is who has a religion, so I would be protected as a Jew. Um, so if they say we won't hire a Jew, I'm protected. But I could also be protected in my practice of my Jewishness. And so if I want to obey the Sabbath or, you know, uh, insist on a kosher meal if the employer's providing food, uh, and so that would also be protected. Uh, but the law doesn't define religion, right? There's no list of what religions count. The law instead says. Uh, that it's up to the individual to identify their own religion. And how do we do that? Um, well, the law says we'll be neutral about that. And so long as it occupies the position that faith would occupy for um, someone we would traditionally think is religious, that would suffice. And so there's all of these cases that emerge from the religious discrimination case law um, that don't look like religion. And so in the book, I talk about you know, the vegetarian and the vegans, um, the church of body modification, um, uh, and all of these identities that are not traditionally faith-based, but occupy this space that is like faith, right? It's so central to your being that we will treat it like religion. And so the only other test then comes that the courts want to make sure that you're sincere about it, right? And what they mean by that is this is actually something that is important to you. You're not just bringing this up uh, to, you know, to succeed in litigation. Uh, and so in the book, I talk about a case where um, a gentleman was a, a caterer. He's a waiter for a catering company. 
Um, and there was a rule that said they had to shave and he was always shaving. Um, and then for some reason, I don't remember why, didn't shave. Uh, and he got penalized at work. And to avoid the penalty, he said, well, it's actually, it's for my religion. I'm Muslim um, and I'm supposed to grow a beard. Um, and so the question in that case was, you know, did he start um, kind of changing the way he lived his faith, which the law would allow you to do, or was he just trying to avoid getting in trouble? And ultimately they concluded it was insincere. He was just avoiding um, getting in, uh, in trouble. But the, the question is a really good one, which is, um, is this something that you organize your life around? Now I'm going to give you, Brian, I'm going to give you a terrible example. Uh, okay. And you've read my book. You can tell that I like talking about myself. So the example is me. Um, and something that is, matters to me, as stupid as this is, is jeans. I wear jeans most days. Um, uh, and I have to wear a suit a lot as an associate dean. And so uh, my assistant puts on my calendar when I'm not allowed to wear jeans. Um, <laughs> jeans. So on my calendar, it just shows up and says, wear a suit. Um, but I'm interested in jeans because I'm actually, it's a hobby of mine. And I take denim pretty seriously, so much to the point that my wife limits the amount of time I'm willing to talk about it, right? And so, because otherwise I'll just talk about it. And so uh, jeans are important to me, right? Um, they are part of my identity, as stupid as that would be. I don't know if I would want to work at a workplace that would say you're never allowed to wear jeans. I would literally have to think about whether I could do that, right? And so that's an aspect of my identity. Um, and I am sincerely uh, interested in it. It is sincerely important to me. Uh, and so I really think that civil rights law should care about that sincerity. Because if we're in the business of protecting identity, I want to protect the identities of the parts of people's identities that matter most to them, because they are mm. critical to making that person. And it's not going to be the same for every person. And it's not going to be the same, you know, in different contexts for a given person. Your identity may change depending on what your circumstances are. Um, but it seems to me that if we want, if we care about difference, and I think we do, um, and we care about creating space for difference, sincerity is a really useful vehicle for capturing how people want to express themselves or kind of live their lives out in the world. Mm, 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 yeah. So, so Zach, I, I wonder if in closing, you could talk a little bit about how your work as a faculty dean sure. has informed your yeah. perspective in the book. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. Uh, I've been um, the dean of faculty for about three and a half years. Um, it's not a traditional kind of research deanship. Um, I have a pretty a pretty wide portfolio. Um, uh, I deal with appointments and promotion and tenure, um, research support. I also deal a little bit with development, um, with some of our kind of marketing and communications. Um, but primarily, I am uh, fixated on the the daily experience of our faculty. Um, and I want to make sure that they are supported, um, that we are creating an environment where they can do their jobs well and they can be effective um, and they can serve the institution. And so what I have learned uh, in doing this is uh, you need information about that, right? And you need to hear about how, uh, how they're actually doing their job. And so when faculty come in, I want to talk to them about what kind of career they want to have. And I want to find a way to uh, facilitate the, the kind of career they want to have. And so faculty want different things. They are all very different. Um, and they want to do different kinds of work. 
um, and they want to have different kinds of results and they want to imagine you know, winning different kinds of awards or, you know, digging into teaching in a different way. And my job is to find a way to make that happen, but also satisfy the needs of the institution. Um, and very much that means that I, I need to understand how incentives work and I need to have to understand how, um, you know, the full range of, you know, trajectories. And ultimately, I treat each faculty member as an individual, right? So there are faculty members who say, it's important to me that I focus on the student experience. That's where I want to make my mark in addition to my scholarship. And so we have to find a carve way to carve space to make that happen. Um, I have a colleague who will say, I want to be famous, right? I want to be on TV. And so how can we get them exposed to the media? Because that's good for them and it, uh, flows down and it's good for the college um, uh, and they'll do their job better. And so I tend to think about authenticity a lot because that's what my work is mostly about. Um, and I think that carries over into their job. And so I treat every, each, in, every faculty member as their own person um, who's trying to create a new career. So for example, Brian, if you came to me and said, I want to start a podcast, how does that factor, <laughs> how does that factor into uh, my career. I have a couple of faculty members who have approached me um, and I'm never going to say that doesn't count for your job. Of course that counts for your job, right? The value of your podcast as an example um, is it, this is like a colloquium for all faculty, right? And it's a colloquium that's not just for a particular school. Um, that, is, that is service to the profession. Um, and so I have developed this theory of service because I kind of control our faculty service and make sure that everybody's doing their fair, fair share. And I have come to the conclusion that no one's service needs to look like someone else's. We have faculty members who mm. all they want is to be kind of you know, knee deep into the nuts and bolts of how the law school is run. Um, and we have some faculty members who their service is service to the world, kind of work at the UN as an example. Um, and I think that all works and the institution can hum along, uh, provided no one feels like they're taking advantage of. And so my job is to check in as the employer and say, how are you? Are you, are you satisfied? Are you getting the kinds of opportunities you need? Do you feel like you're on the trajectory that you need? Are you happy, right? Are you satisfied in your job? If you're not, what can we do? Um, and can I accommodate, right? Can I find a way to make you, um, you know, do the kinds of things that you want to do. Um, and there's a give and take. Are you doing the kinds of things that the institution needs? And so when a faculty says, says to me, I can't teach in this classroom anymore, it does not work for me, um, which is a really kind of low level problem. Um, I'll take it as seriously as the questions of, you know, what is your tenure file going to look like? Uh, because that may be really important to that person. Um, it occurred to me years ago that I should just ask what's important to everyone. Um, and no one had ever asked mm. me that right? Like what matters to you? How can we reward you? Because it turns out that not everyone is motivated by money, um, which is a crazy idea. I realize that. Um, <laughs> sometimes they're motivated by teaching schedule. Uh, and sometimes they're motivated by travel dollars. And sometimes they're motivated by conference support. Um, and it turns out if you ask people, they will identify themselves in different ways. Um, and it really does uh -huh. mirror the kinds of um, trends that I was trying to pull out that I see going on in civil rights law. And so in a lot of ways, um, uh, I tend to see my job in the same way, my administrative job in the same way that I think the law 
should move. It's again, just me trying to mold the, the, the universe around myself. Um, wow. Yeah. 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 Well, that sounds amazing. And I mean, just like a really great way to think about that role with, within a school. Yeah. And it all, it also, it, it makes me think of a line from my two favorite philosophers, which I think is very appropriate for the entire theme of this episode, yeah. which is, uh, be excellent to ah, each other. They're making another one of those, right? <laughs> yes. I yes, indeed. All, I yes, all indeed. Over I have, my son is a teenager and I, I could not wait till I could show him those movies. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't think he thought it was as great as I still think it is. Um, but yeah, I just let me just say I I think we are so lucky to do this kind of work um, and almost all aspects of it. And, and like even going to meetings is wonderful because you get to do these, you get to be surrounded by by thoughtful, caring, committed people all the time. Um, and so mm. I believe that faculty should love the service aspect of the job. And if you don't love the service aspect of the job, it just means we haven't found the service that you should be doing. Um, mm. And so, again, I believe in tailoring and accommodating to the extent, you know, that it's reasonable. So, yeah, I'm, I, and I am all in on uh, Bill and Ted's three. We'll do a follow up. We can talk about it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Ryan. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Zach. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah.